churches in the UK, they had these things called slugger pokers, right? And a slugger poker was someone who was employed by the church, and their job was to have a stick, and if anyone fell asleep during the sermon, they would poke them. Now, this stick had two sides, as all sticks do. One side had a thorn on the end, or a little barb, and the other side had a feather on. And men were stabbed, and women were tickled, and you were woken up from your sleep, okay? So, we have an, in, in space of rods today, I just would like you to use bony elbows or fingers, and if someone next to you does fall asleep, do jab them. <laughs> um, but another thing that I think quite a few of us might not want to admit, but we all do, not all of us, some of us, um, is with podcasts, is we end up getting really in-depth in subjects that we probably shouldn't, but they're interesting because they're quite dark. So... Um, there are a lot of true crime documentaries going around at the minute and also podcasts. Um, and I was thinking about these true crime podcasts as I was writing this talk. So stay with me. I want to begin today by telling you about a man. A man who convinced unwitting parents that he had revolutionized science. They had solved a massive issue that was plaguing the world at the time. That their children would be safe if he was allowed to experiment on them. He wouldn't, go to, um, he wouldn't go for the sons of doctors or the daughters of lawyers or the babies of businessmen. Instead, he would target the working class families, the gardeners, the farmers, the land workers. He would prey on these people that don't have much understanding and he would immorally take advantage of them. His first victim was a boy, eight years of age, and he lied to this boy's father, reassuring him that this would work, taking advantage of the man's lack of understanding. This man decided to use his scientific epiphany to scrape pus out of blisters, and then with a huge needle, he would inject them into the child. And the boy became really ill from that. Unfortunately, he didn't die, but he did spend a while in bed recovering. And after his first victim, this man went on to repeat his actions dozens of times on dozens of children, the youngest of which was 11 months old, scraping blisters and injecting the liquid into children. Does this man sound kind? Does this man sound like a good person? Does he sound like a good Christian? Well, let me tell that story again. In 1796, after 11 years of training, Edward Jenner, the son of a clergyman and a practicing Christian, noticed that milkmaids who had caught cowpox, which is a mild infection that leaves blisters on your hands, wouldn't catch smallpox. Smallpox is a more severe infection that kills 30% of people who catch it. He then went on to create the first ever inoculation, scraping the pus out of the blisters, which is gross, but using that disease to, to uh, eradicate another. 2023, bubonic plague still exists in some places. Smallpox doesn't. Smallpox is the only disease we've 100% got rid of because of Edward Jenner, because of the work he did. Does this man sound like a good man? Does he sound kind? Does he sound like a Christian? They're the same person. So I want to talk today about a couple of things that link together. So we've got a theme for the day, and our theme is inclusivity. Inclusivity comes in many forms. Um, so we're going to start off talking about judgment today. 
We all judged that man that I described in the first half because I purposefully made him sound awful. He was a really good man. He did a lot of good work. And then we're going to talk a bit about forgiveness um, towards the end. Forgiving those that we judge ultimately and loving them for who they are, the way God made them. The reality is we're all far too quick to judge people. It makes sense because we're human, we're animals, right? We have to judge quickly. If a new person we meet is dangerous, we need to know. If they're going to hurt us or our family, we need to know. We have to make a split-second decision as soon as we meet someone. It's for our survival. Last year, Ellie and I found ourselves in Bristol. I, a few of you will know Bristol quite well. Um, and a few of you will know Bristol Zoo, which is closed down now. Um, but they have a, another place. All of their animals are going to a place called the Wild Place. And when we went, Bristol Zoo was still open. So you couldn't, um, they didn't have many animals. They only had a few. Um, but their main attraction at, at Wild Place is something called Bear Wood. Bear Wood is 7.5 acres, which is big, um, with uh, under, just under a kilometer of wooden bridges, like a sort of snake all around these trees, this forest. And in that forest, you can't see any cages because they're underneath the bridges or they're hidden behind bushes. So it just looks like you're walking around a forest. And in that forest, there are only four different animals. There are lynxes, lynxes, lynx, many lynx. There are, um, there are wolves, there are bears, and there are wolverines, not Hugh Jackman. There are the animals, which are terrifying. Uh, I should have got a picture, really, but I don't. They're awful. Um, does anyone have any idea what these four animals have in common? Gemma? Huh? Yeah, they have all got four legs. Yeah? Huh? Lynx is a cat, but yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put you out your misery. I'll put you out your misery. We'll be here all day. All four of those animals, a couple of hundred, they are all carnivores, Gemma. A couple of hundred years ago, though, those carnivores lived in England, in the wild. Okay, they're native to England. There used to be bears. There used to be wolves, lynxes, and wolverines. Um, the wolverine, I had to do some research because I wasn't too sure. It says here, the smallest of those animals is the wolverine. The wolverine has a reputation for ferocity and strength out of proportion to its size. I think we all know a few people like that. Um, and they're able to kill prey more than triple their size. They're about a meter long and about half a meter tall. Um, so if you can imagine that, they're about that long, about this high. I wouldn't take my chances with one of them. So why am I going on about predators? Well, when these animals were wild in England, before Jesus, during Jesus, after Jesus, people had to be aware of them. We had to notice the danger hidden in the trees and make a split-second judgment about what we do, how we respond, how are we going to make sure we are safe from that bear or that wolf, which is why we still do that today. Okay, because we're used to that. Our ancestors did that. We have to make a quick judgment when we see someone to make sure we're going to be safe. And in 2023, 99% of the time, we are safe. But just five minutes ago, using uh, information that wasn't 100% accurate, I was able to make most people in this room think that Edward Jenner was evil. 
It's an easy thing to twist our words and to facilitate judgment, to let judgment happen through what we do. The important thing to remember is that these split-second judgments are normal. They happen. It's not your fault. What is your fault is what you do afterwards. Okay? So you have these split-second um, split judgments. Yesterday, when I was ignorant of the rugby and I thought, this is England's year, it's going to happen, I went on Facebook and I saw Danny Lloyd's smiling face covered in a Welsh flag. And I made a judgment. <laughs> and very quickly, I had to stop myself posting something on that photo. Because it wasn't kind. I still thought of that when England, England's match was cancelled, actually, yesterday, wasn't it? It didn't happen. Um, but we have those split-second uh, judgments but acting on them is where we go wrong. When I was teaching, students would often dig themselves into a hole when trying to get out of trouble when there's been a conflict, an argument, or a fight. Some of the uh, mental gymnastics that you see, saw on a daily basis with these kids, uh, they could have taught a couple of the deputies a thing or two, I think. They, they were impressive trying to get out of trouble. But when you get to the source of the disagreement, when you really got down to it, most of the time it was, they, they did this, so I said, or they looked at me funny, so I said, or I was just saying that. First piece of life advice for today, something I've genuinely said over a thousand times in my previous career, saying nothing is always a valid choice. Sometimes it's best just not to say anything. So when those instincts kick in and you see something you disagree with, immediately shouting about it and trying to explain to the person why they're wrong or somehow less, just don't say anything. Not yet, not to begin with, just shush. Remember that saying nothing is always a valid choice. This is easy enough to do when we're talking about, when we're talking about someone who's wearing a coat you don't like. Or if we're talking about someone who supports a rugby team you don't like, or someone who thinks that uh, the cream goes on a scone first. <laughs> it's easy to just not say anything at all, isn't it, Andy? When they do it wrong, just don't say anything at all. The cornerstone of our faith are commandments, whether you know them as the Ten Commandments or the three, uh, 613 that there are in the Old Testament, or the two commandments that Jesus held um, above all others, we follow commandments as Christians. It's part of our walk with Christ. Commandments are rules, and rules are there to be followed. I think most of us can agree on that, but this complicates matters. If I saw you, I'm going back to it, Andy, I can't drop it. If I saw you putting cream on a scone first and chose to say something to you, I would be arguing something that is subjective. The word subjective means something that is based on a person's feelings or experiences. I prefer eating my scones with a cream on top. In my experience, jam is easier to spread than cream. In my experience, cream tastes nicer and I prefer it on top. 
That's, that's subjective. That's my subjective opinion. The truth is there isn't a right way to do it. There are just different ways to do it. Put your fingers in your ears, Andy. You'll be all right. It's subjective. So really, you don't really have a leg to stand on in that argument. I can't really argue that because I have nothing to back up my ideas other than my personal opinion. What the Bible says, however, is objective. Objective means the opposite of subjective. You can't argue against it because if I say the Bible says this, it's literally there. I can open it and show you. The Bible begins on page one with Genesis. That's true. It's objective. Open your Bible, you see it there. The Bible has 66 books. Objective. Can't deny that. You can count them. The Bible has, and I didn't count these, I googled it, 31,102 verses. Objectively true. The complications come when we know what the Bible objectively says not to do, and then people do it anyway. Our instant reaction is to judge them. The first thing we do in that scenario is think, well, they're not a good person. They're not a very good Christian. They're a bad Christian. They don't follow Christ. An obscure example, and this is an obscure example, the Bible objectively says, you shall not murder. If someone's in prison for murder, and for some reason you end up in a discussion with them, your primal animal senses start to buzz, an alarm goes off in your head, and you think, hang on, I'm in danger here. That person has killed somebody. You think, stay away from that person. You might think that person's going to hell. That's normal as a split-second judgment. That's okay. Treating that person differently is not okay. Refusing that person help is not okay. Not loving that person, as tough as it is, is not okay. It's easy to judge, but we shouldn't. Our job is to follow Christ and to do as he says. His job is to judge us when the time comes. Matthew 7 verses 1 to 5 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why then do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank from out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That first sentence, do not judge or you too will be judged. When Jesus is saying this, he's not talking about other people judging you uh, because you judge them. That's part of life. The hard reality is every single person in this room is being judged by someone somewhere because we're in a church right now. Everyone gets judged for something. It's really unfortunate, but it's unavoidable. People are going to judge you. But we can't judge them back. What Jesus is saying is, when the final judgment comes, when Jesus comes again, we're all, going to be, we're all going to be judged by him. And if we are judging other people, he's going to judge us based on that. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Focus on yourself. In most of my talks, I often find myself saying something similar. If you think that you're a good, perfect Christian, you're probably the least perfect in this room. A good Christian is someone who's able to reflect, someone who is able to change, and someone who is able to be conscientious. Rather than commenting on how other people act, focus on yourself. Make sure you are being the best that you can be. If you hear of someone breaking a commandment, living life in an unchristian way, use that as a motivator to ensure that you are living your life in a Christian way. Because as soon as you begin to judge them, you're going against what Jesus said. As soon as you start to judge them, you are not being a good Christian. Matthew speaks a lot on this. So we're going to look at chapter 25. It's quite a long chunk, so I'll, I'll do it in sections. Um, but we're on chapter 25, verse 31 to 33 to begin with. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, it's talking about Jesus coming back to earth, all the and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from another, uh, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. So here we're talking... Um, we're being told, sorry, that Jesus, God, is going to judge us when Jesus comes back. We will all be put before him, and he, knowing our hearts, will tell us where to go. We will be judged by his standard. And if we've judged others, as we've learned from uh, Matthew 5, we might be sent to the left rather than the right. Carries on. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come. You that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, heaven, prepared for you uh, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Those who have helped people, those who have been good Christians, maybe literally giving people food, shelter, charity, or metaphorically just giving time, giving love to people, giving unbiased kindness to people. These are the people who will inherit the kingdom. That means these are the people who will go to heaven. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you again? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it uh, to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Meaning you don't have to literally give Jesus clothes. You don't have to give him help. You help other people. And through that help, you are helping Jesus. What is it to be a good Christian? Well, it's a question we could talk about debate about for hours but here it's clear be more kind love people unashamedly without bias at the start i said we're going to talk about judgment and then we're going to talk about forgiveness so this is the seamless segue into that some think that links to judgment and the reason um there's 
judgment and forgiveness is the verse, I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. We need to learn or remind ourselves, if not learn, to love people where they're at. Don't wait for them to be what you consider worthy of your love. In the past, I've heard people mocking Christians for their ability to forgive. Some people, some perhaps less kind people, think that it's weakness. They believe that because we are taught to lead with love, because we are taught and teach people to lead with love, to hold off from confrontation, that we're somehow less. Well, the truth is, we're more. We aren't weak. We're strong. Forgiveness is difficult often. Forgiveness does not mean forgetfulness. So this example that we're going to talk about now is uh, a really good indicator of how difficult it is to forgive. And it's, uh, it's quite a sensitive one. So um, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you a story and we're going to watch a little video afterwards. And this is your warning. Okay, if you're if you're particularly sensitive, it it might upset you, um, and you know no one will no one will judge you for taking a step out or just putting your fingers in your ears or whatever. But um, it's completely fine for kids; it's not that bad. Um, so, as I was, it genuinely just it happened. Um, I, I I didn't go searching for this, but as I was writing this talk, I came across uh, a, a case um, of a man called Botham Jean and a woman called Amber Geiger. Amber Geiger was working as a police officer in Dallas, Texas. She'd been working hard and found herself extremely tired one night after particularly difficult shifts. Botham Jean, who was 26, he was an accountant, a young man with his whole life ahead of him, was sat in his own apartment, sat in his flat, in front of the TV, eating ice cream. When Amber, who lived in the same complex um, apartment complex, but on the floor beneath him, walked into what she thought was her own house. She ignored the training that she had been given. She ignored the policies and the police protocols. And as an instinct reaction, seeing someone in her own home, as she thought, she shot the man twice in the chest. And a little later on that night, both of them died in hospital. I've been really lucky in life. I've got three siblings, I've got eight cousins, and I've not experienced any bereavement um, in regards to uh, my younger family. I remember when my granddad died, I remember when my nan died, and I remember how upset I was. But it was natural causes for them. There was no one to blame. To me, this scenario is incomprehensible. I, I can't get my head around it, because we don't live in that society where guns are... Uh, are everywhere. We don't live uh, in places where shootings happen often. But even so, the emotions of Brandt Jean, the emotions he must have been feeling when he heard that his brother had been shot, is not something that many of us, fortunately, will ever understand. He was angry, which is obvious. I think we can all give him that. His mother said that he had spent time lashing out at home, not at other people, never at other people, but he would punch walls. And I think, personally, that's justified. 
that's acceptable. Most, if not all, of us will never know the emotions that Brand Jean was feeling. We will never come close, but imagine just for a second that you do understand. And then imagine someone telling you that the right thing to do at this stage is to forgive your brother's murderer. Imagine if you were in that position, you were in, you were in court and you were faced with the woman who had killed your brother and you're being told, oh yeah, but forgive her, eh? That's what a good Christian would do, you should forgive her. I'm standing in front of you today admitting that I don't know if I could, I don't think I could. I pray that if I'm ever in that situation, I do. But I don't know if I could. I can't get my head around that. Um, we're going to watch a short video now, um, which uh, is a bit upsetting, but it's, um, it's Brant Jean, um, the brother, as he's in court um, talking to the judge uh, whilst Amber is there. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough to see, but amazing to see. That woman is the reason that his brother is no longer alive. Is he judging her? No. He's forgiven her. Did he judge her? I don't know. Probably. He probably did at first. Split-second judgment. I bet he felt like he hated her. That man is an amazing example of what a good Christian is. In that moment, he behaved exactly as Jesus would have. Now, I know that this is an extreme example. I'm not insinuating that we should all get over tragedies in a heartbeat as soon as they happen. Of course, we need time to adjust, to grieve, to make sense of things. But let's just take some time from this. Let's just take something from this to um, make sure we remember Jesus does not want us to judge one another. Remember that saying nothing is always a valuable option, especially when something bad has just happened. Keep those split-second judgments inside. And remember that Jesus loves us. Jesus forgives us. And so we owe that right to other people.